We have, you have to understand that. If you want victory in Christ, you have to understand who you are as a new man. No matter what's lurking in the shadows, never mind that evil has been left. Welcome listeners to That They Might Know with Joe Durso. Dr. Bill Mazzella could not make it tonight, so I'm honored to be filling in for him. My name is Matt Kohlhepp, and just like Bill, I've been greatly encouraged by Joe's discipleship. Particularly, I've seen how destructive a wrong view of our relationship to sin as Christians can be, and I'm thankful to Joe for teaching me about the victory we have in Christ. So brothers and sisters, listen, listen close as Joe continues his study in Romans and the misery of sin. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open the heart of both speaker and listener as we consider together this passage in Romans that is, it's magnificent in its original writing. It is magnificent as the inspired word that you brought through the Apostle Paul in disclosing our condition in a very enlightening way, in a very clear way, and, and yet we go through this veil that we call an English translation to understand a passage that's really vital to our spiritual health. Help us to do this now, uh, to make clear what the Apostle Paul intended by the Holy Spirit of God to tell us about who we are in Christ as saved and as in identified with Jesus Christ, having had our sins washed away and clean as we are justified. And then this matter of being progressively sanctified while we live until we, we come to that final day when we will be with those righteous men who the souls of righteous men made perfect. Until that day, we are in this condition. Lord, help us to understand it so that we might prove to be your disciples, so that we might give you honor and praise and glory, that we might effectively live a victorious Christian life to the degree that you would have us live, to that standard set by you for us, without any legalism, walking in grace, but I ask these things for your honor and your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. I have entitled uh, this message, The Misery of Sin, from Romans chapter 7, verses 14 to 25. Backtracking a little bit from last time, uh, words are only as good as what they mean. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth, the opening words for the Bible. Okay, well, the beginning of what? What God? What is he like? What do we mean by the word God? What heavens? The heavens of the area around the world, or the heavens of space, or the third heaven that the Bible talks about? What, what, what heaven? And you see how we can go on and on like this. We have to define terms. We have to define what we mean. We have to understand what we mean by what we say. We can't just throw words out there. Certainly not when we are delving into what God means by what God has said. 
The value of words are found in their meaning. Let's agree on that. The best translations are those that make a near word-for-word rendering. And I say near because languages are not all equal. In the original text, Greek, Aramaic, Hebrew, they, that, those texts, which they're manuscripts are in the thousands, uh, are, are good manuscripts. They're, they're in the language. And in the time in which they were written, the writers had thoughts behind that. So to really do a good job, to really be true to rightly dividing the word of truth, it takes a, a worker, a laborer. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying my best to do what I understand to be true with regards to a very difficult text in Romans 7, 14 through 25. Seems straightforward. Uh, the, the words aren't that complicated. But it's, it still takes a great deal of work to work through the meaning of these words. Then, of course, there's syntax, you know, what, how words relate to one another in a, in a given sentence. And what I'm laying before you is just to say, you know, if you pick up your, word, your Bible and you read this text, you will come to a certain understanding of it in English. Uh, and then, but what do the words mean? What, what is the syntax saying, really? Let me read this once again in English, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 7. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into the bondage of sin. So what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want to do, I I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I am doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. Now here's the problem with regards to the rendering, as we've just read it, in the English New American Standard Version, which is like one of the best versions. There are other good versions. Uh, It leaves us, tell me if it doesn't leave you, as a wretch and in bondage and enslaved to sin. Now the problem is, in the context of Romans 5 and 6 and 7 and 8, there is not this this idea of this kind of bondage. For instance, we could look at Romans chapter 6 and verse 12 and following, Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Reigning, like it's the king. It tells us what to do and we do it. 
And do not go on presenting your members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present your but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now, God cannot contradict himself. Just It's an impossible thing because when a person contradicts themselves, they either say that they're lying, we think them they're lying, or... They, they don't know what they're talking about. And since that's neither the case to the infinite with God, then that cannot take place. God is perfect. He's true. He's the source of truth. He is. And so that's how we understand. So when we look at God, when we understand Romans 6, to be commanded not to let it rain, and that it shall not rain, and that's the whole tenor of this whole passage but thanks be to God, in verse 17, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You see, it doesn't fit what's being said then in Romans chapter 7 as we read it in our English translation. It's not the best way to look at this passage. So I'm going to go back again. And I've, I've put meaning. It's, it is more of a paraphrase. I said differently. I correct myself. Uh, word for word, as close as we can. But then you have to understand what those mean, words mean that the apostle is using. So I, I've kind of made a paraphrase in Romans 7, 14 to 25. And this is the way it reads. For we know the law came from God who is spiritual. I am a flesh, soul to sin which, if I am not dependent upon God by faith, it is of no help. For my labor, I do not know from personal experience, because that is not me anymore, as the regular routine of my life. God has birthed within me a, desi a new desire. What I labor when I, I hate. For if I work out this desire, I consent with the law that it is good. But now the work is sometimes forfeited because sin missed the mark within me. For I perceive no good residing in my flesh as it is unaided by God, but the willingness to act well resides beside me, that which opposes bringing to a conclusion the beautiful good that inspires others. The inherent good that arises from God I desire by faith, I do not produce by habitual practice the inner malice, but if I do what I do not want any longer, it is sin that remains. After searching, I find, therefore, the principle of inner malice lying down beside me who produces praiseworthy good. For I delight by fully identifying with Christ, with the law of God in my soul and conscience, but I perceive what action should be taken regarding a distinctly different kind of principle in my various working parts, opposing and waging war against the principle of my ability to reason through faith and subjugate my mind regarding the principle of missing the mark by a self-empowered nature and not of God in my being. Beaten down and miserable from hardship as an individual, who can, who can rescue me 
from this misery of soul. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It follows then, therefore, by concession, that I with my reasoning mind am serving as a slave God's law, but proceeding from what is not transformed by God's law as a principle, I forfeit what does not hit the target. It's a lot of words, a lot of concepts, but overall, 14 to 25, Paul is talking about a person in a, in a, in a state of misery because two very opposing ideas are there. One is the idea of a new man recreated, not in the line of Adam, but now in the line of Christ, placed into Christ, given a new heart, a new mind, Rome, Hebrews 8 and 10. The law under this new covenant is written on the mind, it's placed in the heart, and it's the law of God, and it's a law that the new creation in Christ, the new person who's born again, who's regenerate, desires, loves God, desires to love God, desires to grow in God. But there's this other parts residing in the shadows, in the, in the corners, waiting to pounce and bring this new creation down into defeat. It's just left behind for a reason. Uh, in the divine sovereignty, there's good reasons. It's, it's proving who we are. It's making us understand more. There's many, many reasons for this. Can't even imagine what they all are. But they're there. But they're there. The very first verse says something which just, it just goes through this whole portion. I'm not sure how long I'm going to take on going through this. But it states, for we know in the English, uh, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. I want to take these words apart, look at them briefly, and then go to another scripture which all scripture harmonizes and I think gives a fuller meaning even still. Quote, the law came from God who is spiritual, that's my paraphrase, I am a flesh, which if I am not dependent upon God by faith, it is of no help. Jesus walks in the flesh, never sins. The flesh in and of itself is neutral. Christ was perfectly holy, divine, and as a man, never sinned. The flesh, there was no flesh in the sinful sense with regards to Jesus. He's, he was tempted in all points, yet without sin. There was no sin. There was choices. There was outward temptation, nothing from within, because he was holy. But from out, without, there were still temptations, and he had a face and win, and he did, every time, in motive, in attitude, in thought, in word, in deed, all of it, completely holy. The Christian life, as portrayed in Romans 7 passage, consists with the first principle that the law came from God who is spiritual. The Christian life, as portrayed in Romans 7 passage, is consistent with this first principle that the law came from God and God is spiritual. The law is spiritual because it comes from God. The first verse uh, of a very difficult portion of Scripture sets the tone for all that is to follow. The first word of verse 14. The first word is oida, to have seen or perceive that the law is spiritual. It's to perceive or see. What? That the law is spiritual. What's that mean? There are two parts to man. There is the physical side and there is the spiritual side or the soulish side. God is spiritual. 
until he became a, a man in the person of Jesus Christ. We are, I just stated that. The term sarkonos lacks, uh, we're told in Greek by Greek scholars, lacks the heavy derogatory sense of sarkikos, carnal. So therefore it puts it in that neutral state, even the word, uh, that term. We perceive that the law of God is spiritual. I am of flesh. This word flesh lacks that derogatory sense. Uh, sold, it says, uh, which I am, if I am not dependent upon God by faith, but in the English says, the law is spiritual, but I am carnal. That's uh, sarkikos. Sarkinos. I am sold or devoted to. I am sold or devoted to harmashia, sin, emphasizing, get it, the self-originated, self-empowered nature, i.e., it is not originated or empowered by God if it is not by faith. Uh, it, it, this inworking. So what's being said here? In our inner parts, in, in who we are, there is this sin that inhabits. It's, it's taking up not really a residence. It's, it's, like I said, it's in the shadows. And that part of us is a part that's not willing to let God be God and to not only direct our ways, but to empower us. The Christian is a person who doesn't just like know the right thing to do. He's a person who is in a place by faith to, be, to, be, to depend upon God, to empower him to do what's right. This is a huge concept in the scriptures. It's huge here in Romans. It's everywhere. So let us, let's turn, if you can, otherwise listen carefully, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul in this chapter is going through this whole idea of the resurrection. And there were people in the church who were saying that there's no resurrection and all kinds of things are crazy. First, he states the resurrection that had happened. That Christ died three days later. He was resurrected from the dead in newness of life. Having put our sins to death, he then imparts newness of life, which is what Paul is talking about in Romans 6 in, in six and 7, leading up to this portion, and then, and then expands on all of that in Romans 8. It's all about spiritual life, the resurrected life of Christ. This is huge. And so then he, he, after stating this in 15, he then goes on to an order of the resurrection, and from the order of the resurrection, he then proceeds to talk about the mystery of the resurrection. So in the order part, in verse 32 to 34, this is what we read in 1 Corinthians 15, quote, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Sober up morally and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What's Paul doing here in Corinthians is this. 
there is a philosophy in the world. The philosophy of the world is there's no resurrection. I mean, they told Paul when he was talking to him before, Felix, I believe, in, in Acts, you know, he's going on about the resurrection. And he turns to him and he says, uh, you, you've lost your mind. <laughs> yeah, because anyone who says there's a resurrection from the dead, you know, the body dies, it goes to the ground, it's not going to get up out of the ground. I mean, anyone who says such a thing is a fool in, to the world. That's the, the world's philosophy. And the world's philosophy is very clear. Uh, let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die. And that's it. It's over. And that's why he leads in and says, bad company corrupts good morals. Don't, don't listen to the world. We're not of the world anymore. We understand we believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We understand that there's a day coming in which he will judge the world. And he's going to judge the world. God will judge the world according to Jesus Christ, how he lived his life, according to his death and his resurrection. And those who believe in him, uh, apart from works, are saved. And they're saved, and in their salvation, they're saved to be sanctified, to be changed now and perfected upon death. Moving on in verses 35 and 36, he says, but someone will say, how are the dead raised? And with what kind of body do they come? Uh, Paul's response to that is, you fool. Now he's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is saying, God is saying to us, you fool. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. Get this. This body has to die. When it dies, and he goes into the, the particulars of that, which I don't want to spend the time in this lesson, it comes to life, and when it comes to life, it's regenerated, it's a new body, part of the new creation, yet future. It does not contain any sin. It's a perfect uh, channel through which God will live. This whole idea of faith, and dependence upon God is where he's going in Romans, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Sorry. And it's this new body as a perfect channel of blessing, of holiness, of purity, that we're given. Now, it's all through the ministry of the intercessory work of Christ, which is another part of two sides of one coin. There is a new body, but there's also the intercessory work of Christ, which will keep men holy for eternity. Again, not going to go there today. Just want to throw that out there. Because I want you to know that there's two sides. In verses 42 to 45, Paul goes on and says, and I quote, So also is the resurrection of the dead. There's no resurrection without being dead. No one's resurrected alive. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown perishable, a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. Imperish perishable, it dies. It's raised imperishable. No more death. That's done away with. The wages of sin is death. You do away with sin, you do away with death. All done. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam was a life-giving spirit. Now, there's a huge difference between these. Adam had uh, life placed into him. He received the breath of life, and he became a living soul. He did not have the ability to impart Christ's resurrected life in any man. 
What he did do was sin, and as a result of that, imparted this death of the body, of the soul, in all mankind. It's just passed on from man to man, man to man, in this procreation that takes place, and so that the whole human race has been corrupted. It's been been corrupted through regeneration, uh, through generating from one to another. So the first man, Adam, became a living person. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. There's the natural, and there's the spiritual. The spiritual is from God, which is holy and perfect and just and all good God, godly character without any sin. Verses 50 to 57, he takes this and goes on and says, Now I say this, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I am telling you a mystery. We are, we will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on imperishable and this mortal must put on immortality. But when the perishable puts on imperishable and this mortal puts on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death has been swallowed up in victory. Oh, where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Going back to this, the very first part, when he opens up and he says, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. This principle carries all through the scriptures. We see it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We also see it in John chapter 1. Here's the beginning of the gospel. Here's Jesus appearing on earth in this historical account. And what does John say? He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. This is speaking clearly of Jesus, the word becoming flesh. But, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God. Catch it, even those who believe in his name, who, verse 13, were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It was God's will. It was not man's will. It was not something generated in the flesh, in this soul that's been corrupted by sin by which we were born. No, no, no. No, who were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. What's the will of the flesh and the will of man? Everything that we understand to be ungodly and, and to be corrupted and to be sinful when, as, a, as this body is, a channel in, for itself rather than a channel for God. The new man, the spiritual man, as just stated, is a, a channel for God to do his will through his power in his way for his glory. 
That's what a spiritual body is a channel for. Paul concludes in verse 58 and says, Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So concluding this, this portion in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is this admonition. Therefore, oh, what? Uh, be firm, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord. How? How? Knowing that your labor is not in vain. That's a faith. That's hope. That's hope of the resurrection from the dead when we will be perfected. And every single promise from God, every single hope that we lay hold of, every single way that we give ourselves to trust God, from that comes the power of God to live a holy life. A holy life. Going back to Romans chapter 7, verses 22 and 21 and 22. Concluding from that portion we would just, I just laid out. After searching, I find, therefore, the principle of inner malice laying down beside me who produces praiseworthy good. So 21 is making it clear that he finds, therefore, the principle of inner malice. The one hiding in the shadows, the one crouching at the door, its desire is to rule over us, but we must rule over it by the power of God, by faith, by the faith in the power of God. So for verse 22, he states the opposite side. There's this principle, this presence of sin in the members of our body, but in verse 22, for I, which I, that's the new man created in Christ Jesus, the one raised from the dead through the work of God by faith in the work of God accomplished on the cross and three days later in the resurrection from the dead, Christ's life, that perfect life, after having carried our sins away, sins gone, those belong to us, taken in his body and now forgiven, and now he's raised from the dead and that is imparted. And then in verse 22 Romans of Romans uh, he, he, Paul he states it, for I delight by fully identifying with Christ, with the law of God in my soul and conscience. Again, a little paraphrased, the meaning behind the words, I delight by fully identifying with Christ, with the law of God in my soul and conscience. This is the new man. There's the principle of inner malice, but there is this identification with Christ by faith that gives the victory. And he states it here, that's who he is in the inner man. We have, you have to understand that. If you want victory in Christ, you have to understand who you are as a new man. No matter what's lurking in the shadows, never mind that evil has been left in there. Who are you? I love that in Overcomer, the movie. You know, who are you, man? You know, who are you? What, what do you mean? I don't know what... What game we're playing. It's not a game, man. Who are you? Well, let me make it simple. Did you pray for me when you left? And it was hypocrisy involved. And he had a, and there's points in our life when we, we have to own sin. It is present. It's not, it hasn't been totally annihilated. It's, it's present. But victory can be won. And when a man bows down on the knees, when it does rear, rear its head, and it does gain some victory in our life, you bow down your knees, you confess your sin, you're cleansed by the blood of Christ, forgiveness is yours. 
You know, if, if I sin, I, if I confess my sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to go on cleansing us from all unrighteousness. We go on, it's done. We go on to what? We go on to victory. And who's in control? Christ is. If Christ is always in control when I'm putting my trust in him, if my faith wavers, if I walk, if I drop it, if I take my eyes off of Christ, well, then I'm back to step one, bowing at the cross and being reunited with Christ again. But, you know, I say these things to you, John said in, in 1 John 2, 1, so that you may not sin. Let's get it right. The principle stated here uh, needs to be understood, and then let us understand verse 23. And this is where the misery comes in. It's the nature of the conflict. But I perceive what action should be taken regarding a distinctly different kind of principle in my various working parts, opposing and waging war against the principle of my ability to reason through faith. Now, that's a, kind of a long part of this sentence, um, but it's not complicated when we read it this way. But I perceive, that's that same word, he's, he's perceiving something, he's seeing something, what action should be taken. And I've just described it in some detail. And that action is the action of faith. Whether it's coming to grips with a sin that is we, we, we observe in our life. And there's, look, there's wins, there's sins. And if you go through the opening chapters of Leviticus, it makes it very clear in the law that there is a distinct difference between when we're caught by surprise by a sin, it's not a self-willed, rebellious sin, but it's part of who we are in, in this nature, and unconsciously, perhaps not aware like we should be, not on our guard, not praying to God and getting close to Him every morning and the afternoon and night, when we're not living that kind of a life, and sin overtakes us. When that happens, when sin overtakes us, that's not self-willed. There are sins still forgivable, all sin is, uh, for the Christian who's a believer in Jesus Christ and is identified with him. But there is that willful sin that can take a, a hold, which we are admonished in Romans chapter 6, that that does not happen to us. That we are not captivated by sin. By sin. And so right now what we're talking about in this portion in chapter 23, in verse 23 of chapter 7, he's talking about this principle. He's not talking about bondage. He's not talking about slavery. He's talking about where you can be subjugated because the principle is there. It's possible, but it's not a way of life. He already stated earlier that the way of life in this is a new man, the new way of life is faith, not in the flesh, not in my capabilities, not in some self-pride, not some manuf something, some holiness I can manufacture, all of that, no. This is faith in Jesus Christ. This is faith in what God has done at the cross and in the resurrection from the dead, in newness of life, in placing the law in our mind and heart. It's all about faith. So when he says... I perceive what action should be taken regarding a distinctly different kind of principle. The action is faith. The action is trust. The action is the kind of faith that sees Christ raised from the dead 
And that's his will for my life, and that's where I need to be. And I believe it's possible. I believe it's more than possible. I think it's possible by the living God who can do anything and exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think. So there's this different kind of principle in the various working parts opposing and waging war against the principle of my ability to reason through faith. And here's the conflict, and here's the misery. These two, they wage war against one another. They, they, there is an ability that we have to reason. And when we reason through faith, we reason from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, for instance. There where there's a resurrection from the dead, we're dead in Christ. We're alive in Christ. We have the power by Christ to defeat this foe. Now, if you want to live defeated, you can do that. If you want to live in this place where you throw away reason and reason that's in faith in Jesus Christ, the power of God, if you throw that away, though, uh, you're going to live more miserable than you do if you live a, a mostly victorious life. This may be quantities here. I'm not talking about anything to perfection, neither victory nor certainly not defeat. Because if a person lives in defeat to some point, God will take you home early. We know that from 1 Corinthians 10. We know that from James. We, God is, I, I, I have every confidence, Paul said, that he who begun a good work in you will perfect it to the day of Jesus Christ. And if you're going to be adamant, if you're going to be self-willed, if you're going to be faithless, God will take you home, but you will be saved. But you'll be taken home. If you go on living in sin like the devil, don't expect to see heaven one day. You know, people want to make grace something that it's not. Grace is not the, the freedom to sin like the devil because that's not what we're made for. We've, we're, we've been recreated in Christ for good works, not for evil works. Shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid it. Do we sin? Yes. Do we take up the self-will the, to the point of absolute rebellion towards God as if we were Satan ourselves, well, that's not a Christian. And if a person does live that way, just plan on going home early uh, because that's not Christianity. Here's Christianity. Here's the hard part, the misery of verses 24 and 25. Beaten down and miserable, not wretched, beaten down and miserable in the original from hardship as an individual, who can ris rescue me from the, this misery of soul? For Paul, it was misery. Anyone who goes on sinning like they're not even a Christian, that's not a Christian. A Christian is living a miserable life. A miserable life. Because he doesn't want to even be in the battle. He just wants the freedom to not even have sin be part of anything that he is. That's a Christian. He wants to live a holy and godly life. Can he be captivated? I've already gone through it. Let's accept this fact. Verse 25, the Christian in Paul said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Beaten down and miserable from hardship as an individual, who can rescue me? Thank God through Jesus Christ he can rescue me. It follows, therefore, by concession that with my reasoning mind am serving as a slave God's law. When we reason, 
in our heart that's been recreated in Christ. And we understand death and resurrection and newness of life. We, we, we get the victory. We serve as a slave God's law. That's not a slave to sin. That's a slave of God's law. And here's where the concession comes in. But proceeding from what is not transformed by God's law, but proceeding from what is not transformed from God's law, I forfeit what does not hit the target. So this sin, not as a, a, an all-powerful thing, bringing me into a bondage which is absolutely irrecoverable. And see, part of the problem here, and I need you to really consider this as we close this up, is about reasoning. The man whose mind is clear and able to reason, the man who takes God's scripture and exalts it above sin, above the devil, above the philosophy of the world, above the world, above everything demonic, when, when man reasons that way and he reasons correctly and right, he may miss the mark. He may do something which is not willful. He may do it accidentally because he's not being careful enough, because he hasn't prayed clearly, because he hasn't gone close enough to the Lord. But when he does fall and he recognizes it, he's in misery. And when he's in that misery, he must seek God. And if he knows the way to reason his way out, as in 1 John chapter 1, and he understands the depth of God's forgiveness and his ability to cleanse the soul and forgive and reunite and bring the relationship back together, when a man is able to reason, that, there's nothing can hold that kind of man back. A man, and what I'm basically saying is when a man understands the scripture correctly, when he's not reading some book written by some half-baked uh, Christian maybe, or maybe some false prophet, or someone who doesn't understand what he's talking about, or someone who hasn't walked with God uh, uh, closely for a good period of time, and history is filled with such men, uh, good godly Christians, when, when a man is not able to reason that way, he will find great amount of defeat. He will find his way to be absolutely miserable in life, and he will be in a place where he may even be so hardened, he, God take him home early. He may get a cancer, may get hit by a car, and something may happen to take him home. But it doesn't have to be that way. And that's just why I say it doesn't have to be that way, because God's word is better than that. It's bigger than that. It's more as substantial. It's, it's reasonable. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins like scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. It's reasoning. How does that happen? Through the cross, through the resurrection from the dead, through faith in the promises of God. The person living in the flesh and dominated by his carnal nature, unaided by the spirit of the living God, is living a misery that is not necessary. I have lived on both sides. I have lived that misery. I've been delivered from that misery. I continue to be deli delivered from that misery less degrees than I was at one time in my life. 
I mean, I went through one period of time which lasted for nearly two years. And coming out of that misery of soul, what did I find? I found restoration. I found, uh, I found a, a path to growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, which just kept growing and growing and growing and growing, not without certain defeats, but self-will take a bu- take, uh, took a back seat. Rebellion took a much bigger back seat. And that's where I want my hearers to this to be. There are weapons by which we win the battle. This kind only comes out through prayer and fasting, Jesus said. The kind of prayer and the fasting he's talking about is the kind that just builds faith. It's about faith. It's about having a a great faith. The world, the person who lives a victorious life, he dies to the world. He dies to self. He dies to the philosophy of the world. He gives that up. This is the, the person who's victorious in battle. He dies to self and he dies to the world. The flesh... He flees temptation. He flees temptation. The devil, he submits to God, he resists the devil, and the devil flees from him. These aren't my words, these are James's words. James says, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, I thought it was all about Jesus. It is. But the person who submits to God does it by the reasoning that I'm talking about out of Romans chapter 7. The reasoning that makes Christ all in all. The person who resists, who submits to God, does it that way, and he resists the devil. That's right. But as a channel. Yes, it's God working through us, in his power. And as God's power flows through the Christian, who then submits to God by that same power, he resists the devil. And he resists the devil, and when he does, the devil flees. And that's why James says, unequivocally, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now that's different than fleeing from temptation. You have to have the right antidote for the right problem, for the appropriate illness. If it's the world, you die to self. You die to the world. If it's the flesh, you flee temptation. By the power of God. I'm not going to look at that picture. I'm not going to think that, th- that thought. I'm not going to reconstruct God in my image so I can do what I want. No, I'm going to flee, flee those temptations. The devil, I'm going to submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. And I have to tell you, brother, I'll be honest about my hardship and my self-will and my rebellion in days past, and I can equally tell you countless times over decades I have, resi- I have submitted to God by the power of God. I have resisted the devil, and I have seen him flee. And if I'm a, God, may, if I'm a liar, may God judge me right now in this moment. But I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. And I'm telling you a truth that is available to you, my hearers, and to every person who's been born again and is regenerate and is a new creation in Christ. Old things are passing away, and all things are becoming new. This is not for me alone. This is for every Christian in the hearing of my voice, every person who reads the Bible, every person who's been born again, every single, this is not for pastors, this is for every single believer. It's yours for the taking. You take it by faith. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word. 
thank you for me stumbling through this and that you're able to take even my my stumbling and my falling and my weakness of words and my inabilities and take this word that is is it's it's perfect in every in every word in every syllable in every thought it's it has the power of God, of God in it because it's inspired by you take this word place it on the hearts of those who might listen to this give them the 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 reasoning power by faith to walk a a a, a victorious life and when they stumble and fall may they see the value of the blood that can wash them from sin, pick them back up, put them right on a victorious walk again. For this we give you all the honor, all the praise, all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.